0: Face forward, head up, shoulders relaxed, flat back, hands spread gracefully over the keys, wear elegant gowns, outearn all of your contemporaries, turn the classics on their head, take Hollywood by storm, get blacklisted, flee to Europe, fight for civil rights, fight for your people, for music, die a legend. Hello! welcome to the final episode of the first season of The Blacklist, where I, your host, Mariah, discuss the black pioneers in classic Hollywood. We spent this first season discussing women who've inspired my love of film and career aspirations, and that's included the first Black Academy Award winner, a glamorous black movie star signed to arguably the biggest Hollywood studio. A woman whose career spanned seven decades, a woman whose light skin was weaponized, and a woman who appeared in well over 200 films in her career. All pioneers, activists ahead of their time, powerful, beautiful, brilliant. And today's subject is the perfect end to this season. This is a woman who was easily one of the most gifted and well received artists of her time, an immigrant a musical prodigy whose talents guided her through the rough Harlem streets and from a very, very, very young age, through the tough world of show business. She took care of her family and rode a high through the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. But the Red Scare of the 50s and her outspoken political activism found her ousted from an industry that once revered her. She was often caught between a rock and a hard place in the classical community and in the black community and had to fight tooth and nail to forge a lane that didn't force her to choose between the two things that defined her and colored her life trained classically but tantalized by jazz and swing she decided that she'd have the best of both worlds by fusing the two this is the story of hazel scott the hottest classicist in town Hazel Scott is actually the first of our subjects this season that was not born in the United States. Hazel was born June 11th 1920, on the northwest coast of Trinidad, which was actually called the Port of Spain, Trinidad, and Tobago, to parents Alma Long Scott and R. Thompson Scott. Hazel was actually the pair's fifth child, but she was the only child to live long enough to see adolescence and adulthood. She had a brother that died when he was two. This deeply wounded Hazel's parents because they thought that he and Hazel would be the two to make it, but only Hazel did. This pressure followed her her entire life because her mother said that she survived for a reason that only God knows, so she felt that she had to be great. She was literally all that her parents had. Hazel's parents are interesting on their own and their stories colored the trajectory of Hazel's life. Her mother, Alma Long, soon to be Alma Long Scott, grew up relatively middle class and was trained classically as a pianist as everyone in Alma's family was gifted and her parents forced them to work hard to become prodigies. So Alma trained her entire life to become a concert pianist. She and Hazel had an Interesting relationship for reasons that will become apparent later in the episode. Hazel's father was a different story, though. He was a brilliant and highly trained scholar who spoke at least 12 different Chinese dialects. The Scott family valued hard work over any and everything else. Her parents had great aspirations for themselves and later for their children. But Hazel would later describe her father in very few words, calling him a square. They were never very close. He was a very private man, and if he ever shared his feelings, he didn't share them with his family. The family never talked about or even mourned the many infant mortalities that they suffered. They were never very vocal about their feelings. There was no time. They knew that there was so much upward mobility and progress that African Americans needed to make and no time to lose. Hazel's father taught, and after years and years and years of training— Hazel's mother was finally ready to make her debut in Trinidad as a pianist. While performing classical numbers, she was beyond prepared to play. She felt an incredible shooting pain in her wrist. She tried to ignore it, but the pain was so intense that she couldn't. Her debut was disastrous, to say the least, and she couldn't even finish the concert. She was crushed, but determined to figure out what the problem was so that she could fix it and gain back some of the dignity that she had lost during that concert. But the doctor had no good news for her. It turns out that after dedicating her life to nothing but learning how to play the piano, that she physically could not do it for long stretches of time because she had a condition that caused intense and unbearable pain in her wrists. She never learned how to do anything else. She was crushed and embarrassed and had no idea what to do next. But there was no time to stop. She had a family to support, and Hazel's father often found himself between jobs or away from the home. So she had to work, or she and Hazel would starve. So she began teaching piano to the children of the neighborhood. Not what she wanted, not ever what she imagined, but at least she was still playing. At least the piano was still a part of her life, in however small a way. But one day that all changed. Because Hazel's father would often leave home without warning or without explanation for long stretches of time, sometimes only returned to spend quality time with Hazel. And since the relationship between he and Alma had basically dissipated, not legally, but romantically, Alma was often forced to work menial jobs, leaving Hazel in the care of her type A grandmother. But on this particular day, a revelation was made. Hazel's grandmother, Margaret, was seeing Hazel, Gentle Jesus, to get her to go to sleep. But on this day, a three-year-old Hazel approached the piano, and with both hands and from memory, Hazel played the song that her grandmother sang. Her grandmother was in utter and complete shock that this three-year-old, with no formal or informal training, was playing the song by ear, and playing it well. She screamed, and Alma and the other neighbors came running to see this unbelievable feat. While the neighbors were in shock, Alma was busy critiquing Hazel's technique, something that would never change in Hazel's life. No one even knew she possessed such a talent. She said of this, "'Until then,' No one had paid me any attention as I crawled off my potty chair, seated myself on the floor, and using the seat of the chair as a keyboard, played away for dear life along with the students who were studying piano with my mother. Then Hazel was performing everywhere in Trinidad as a three-year-old child, I'll remind you. And Hazel loved the piano. She loved the applause. She loved the smiling people. She was hooked. And on Hazel's fourth birthday, Hazel and her mother left Trinidad for much bigger stages, and better opportunities in New York City. Her father had already left for New York City permanently years before Hazel and Alma did. But in 1924, they moved to Harlem and the diaspora exploded in the 1920s Harlem. Hazel was exposed to cultures of Afro-Latinos, Southern blacks, middle-class blacks, other immigrants speaking French and Spanish and in dialects she'd never heard before. And nothing in Hazel's life would ever influence her musical style more than the things she experienced in Harlem. By the age of four, she was a piano prodigy, but her many cultures bled into her work, mixing her Trinidadian New York and classical influences. The jazz, the swing, the boogie-woogie were all so attractive to Hazel, but her love of Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart never dissipated. Hazel and her mother had a rough relationship considering the fact that Hazel was naturally gifted at something it took Alma years to cultivate. And her mother always carried a tinge of resentment about Hazel's impending success. In Harlem, they lived with Hazel's aunt Lila, who hated Hazel and everyone who lived with her and her husband, because they owned the house and hated everyone who lived there. Lila stayed home with Hazel and forced Hazel to do chores for her. She'd make Hazel run errands and make her pay debt collectors and sign for things at the age of four, which, of course, spread through the neighborhood and did not end well. This carelessness on the part of Unlila caused people to talk and led to them being robbed by a group of white men, and Hazel was beaten badly. This was Hazel's first experience with racial tensions because her family had tried, as any family would, to shield her from that stuff, excluding Hazel's father who lectured her on social issues and the injustices that African Americans face and how he could personally attest to that. He was a black nationalist and a follower of Marcus Garvey, and he actually once took Hazel to a meeting at the Universal Negro Improvement Association headquarters. She was five. After that, she began reading newspapers because her aunt would send her to get the newspaper every day, and she could read well by this point. she learned about various racial issues in the newspaper and would often go back home and ask guests questions about racial tensions in America, which shocked and horrified her mother and forced the family to censor her readership even more. But Hazel was much smarter than any of them anticipated and, of course, found a way around this. But from that point... She learned that her family was not the group of people to discuss this with, so she kept it to herself, but started forming her own opinions about race relations at the age of five. She was honing her piano skills and was learning at a pace, at a level much more advanced than her age. Hazel had such a sensitive ear that she could play anything she heard with basically no practice at all. Her mother taught her technique, but she hated it, and it would become her life's work to make it fun. She said of this, It was my first encounter with true discipline, and as I was to do all my life, I promptly rebelled. Instead of the dull five-finger exercises that I repeated interminably, I would break into Hold'em Joe, me donkey want water. Calypso was so much more fun than every good boy does fine. But again, she was five years old, and soon she was playing Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach with ease. Then she began performing in churches in Harlem to much praise. And in 1925, at the age of five years old, she played her first professional concert at Town Hall. And everyone in Manhattan was talking about the young black musical prodigy from Harlem. Whenever someone from Trinidad paid a visit to the Scott family, they requested to hear the prodigy play the Calypsos, referring to the Afro-Caribbean music that originated in the Trinidad and Tobago, her homeland. She loved the attention she received, but Hazel was actually a very lonely child, She trained rigorously, and that took up a lot of time. She had no idea how to socialize with other children and often spent her free time alone in her room, daydreaming about a perfect life. Once she was invited to a birthday party, and inevitably, they forced her to play the piano, and the birthday girl told Hazel that she was only invited so they could hear her play the piano. This was a recurring theme in her childhood. But her mother didn't have time for Hazel's childhood angst. She put all of her aspirations into Hazel's career and was banking on its success. When Hazel was eight, Alma forced her to audition for the Juilliard School, even though they didn't let people under the age of 16 audition. But Hazel was allowed to audition thanks to the relentlessness of black mothers. And as she played Rachmaninoff's prelude in C sharp minor, she had to improvise because, as I said, she was eight years old and her hands couldn't reach all the keys. And when the head of the Juilliard School heard this, he burst into the audition room and Hazel explained that she had tiny hands and feet, and everyone was aghast. They called her a genius, and Professor Oscar Wagner offered to teach Hazel himself. And at the age of eight, Hazel was admitted to the Juilliard School, where she was intensely trained and honed her gifts for years. This wasn't always joyful to Hazel, who wasn't allowed to act like a child without fear of punishment and resentment from her mother, who wasn't allowed to date or even walk home with boys. This loneliness and inadequacy in the eyes of her mother colored their relationship. It wasn't long before Hazel's success garnered the attention of jazz heavyweights in her mother's friend circle. And in addition to the private Juilliard training, she spent her adolescence around people like Art Tatum, Billy Holiday, Lester Young, who were all like family to her mother. And in the 1930s, Hazel toured around the U.S. and the Caribbean as a part of her mother's band, Long Scott's American Creolians, because she said to her mother, I cannot stay home with people who are not in this business. They want to make a little lady out of me. But not everyone on the tour appreciated the amount of tension that Hazel received for her gifts. But the depression hit them hard, especially in Harlem. Alma's band was forced to disband due to many financial issues. But her mother taught her to incorporate many different musical styles into her performance to differentiate her from others and to make her more versatile and adaptable to various gendered and racialized spaces. And once, Hazel was booked at the Roseland, again through some relentless black motherhood, on the same bill as the Count Basie Orchestra. There was no turning back. At just 15 years old, Hazel followed the Count Basie Orchestra at the Roseland, Growing up in Harlem, her mother often worried about Hazel's safety, but she had a bevy of great, legendary black musicians that were friends of the family supporting her and protecting her. So what does a 15-year-old who's conquered the Roseland, New York Town Hall, and most of Harlem to do with the support of soon-to-be industry titans and a very determined mother behind her? What does she do with all that unbelievable talent and presence? Why, go down and uptown, of course— in 1938, she was cast in the Broadway show Sing Out the News at the Music Box Theater, a show in which Rex Ingram also starred. We discussed Rex Ingram when we discussed the film Cabin in the Sky and At the Waters episode. Just a fun fact. Hazel was earning $100 a week, which, of course, is much more than anyone in her family was earning. But this kind of grueling schedule can be hard on a teenager, and a lot of people said that though her musicality was leaps and bounds ahead of people two, hell, even three times her age, her personality was still childish. She performed at a lot of smaller clubs, taking the classics and turning them on their heads, bringing out the boogie-woogie, which her mother hated, but the audiences couldn't get enough of. She was known around town as the glamorous darling of Harlem. Then came Café Society... Café Society is an interesting place in time and in history, often called the wrong place for the right people. It was an integrated nightclub and home to many soon-to-be-famous African-American performers and a place where the likes of Lillian Hellman, Langston Hughes, Eleanor Roosevelt, Paul Robeson, Lena Horne, Billie Holiday, Carol Channing, etc., 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 could all be found talking, drinking, smoking, performing. Barry Josephson, the club's founder and soon-to-be Hazel's manager, was a fan of the Harlem jazz scene of the 20s, but the bigotry of places like the Cotton Club upset him, so he decides to start an integrated, upscale nightclub. She made her Cafe Society debut in 1939. It actually happened by chance when another black woman, Ida Cox, a blues singer, couldn't perform. It was Billie Holiday, her mentor and self-proclaimed stage mother, who told Barney Josephson to hire Hazel, even though no one knew who she was. Billie had the utmost confidence in Hazel's talent, telling Barney to just hire her. It was this night that she began to perform in what would become her signature white satin strapless gown elegant and regal looking she wore gardenias in her hair in honor and to thank billy for this opportunity and hazel did not disappoint playing compositions from all the great composers but making them her own increasing the tempos and changing the melodies forcing the audience to keep up with her rapid-fire pace improvising until everyone was up on their feet they couldn't get enough of her she would later be dubbed the darling of cafe society She would go on to become one of the highest paid performers, black, white, male, female, gender non-conforming of her era. And while performing at Cafe Society Uptown, the second iteration of the famous club, her salary was raised from $700 to $1,500 a week. And she wore more elegant gowns and furs from the Lloyds in London and more diamonds custom-made by Harry Winston. She was befriending Frank Sinatra and any famous person she desired. She was the main attraction at Cafe Society for years. This kind of fame and success was intoxicating. Everyone in Harlem knew who she was and what she could do. In 1940, she recorded her first solo album, Swingin' the Classics, Piano Solos in Swing Style with Drums. And in 1941, at a young but seasoned age of 21 years old, Hazel performed at Carnegie Hall for the first time in Cafe Society's from Bach to Boogie Woogie concert. Hazel was a hit all around New York City. Some critics couldn't get enough of her edgy playing and her sultry presence, while others felt that she was disgracing the profession and disrespecting the classics, saying things like, There can be no doubt of the commercial appeal of the jazz classics. Nightclub audiences reserve their most frenzied applause for John Kirby's version of Debussy's Claire de Lune, Hazel Scott's version of Defala's Fire Dance, and Art Tatum's elaborations on Humoresque. Miss Scott relies mainly on musical humor at which it is hardly fair to cavil, unless one also objects to a clown's burlesque of a legitimate actor or to a comedian's impersonation of the president. Art Tatum, on the other hand, is a great musician who should be satisfied to exercise his ability to play both classics and jazz authentically without resorting to such bastard combinations. But the New York Times critic Edward Taubman says, The shining star of the evening was a dusky belle named Hazel Scott, who can play the piano straight and swing, who can sing, and who can decorate any stage you like. She was the main attraction at Carnegie Hall, at Cafe Society, in New York City. No one could do what Hazel did. She was talented, to say the least. She was in a lane all her own. She began doing radio engagements, and they would always introduce her as the hot classist. And finally, at the age of 22 it was time to go to Hollywood. Hollywood. Though segregation often prevented Blacks from performing in films and in music at places like Paramount, Columbia, and MGM, Hazel was often allowed to perform as a specialty artist. She, like Lena Horne, was one of the first African-American actresses to portray characters who were dignified and educated and worldly, Hazel was wise beyond her years, and she'd been raised by militant, respectable black people and refused to relinquish the lavish lifestyle she lived off screen for a maid's uniform on screen. She had no intention or desire to play a character that was a slave or a savage and would outright refuse anything in that vein that was offered to her. When she signed film contracts, she had final approval over any musical numbers that she was to perform and she would wear her own clothes since they were probably leaps and bounds more glamorous than anything the studios would offer her. And the icing on top of this boss-ass bitch cake was that no matter what role or film... She was to be credited as Hazel Scott as herself. Hazel Scott as herself. Queen shit only. Fun fact Hazel was considered and eventually passed over for the role of the pianist in Casablanca, which we all know went to Arthur Dooley Wilson because she was a woman. But still, what a feat for a young black woman. The first notable film that Hazel appeared in was in Columbia Pictures, Something to Shout About. Then she starred in the MGM film I Do It with Lena Horne for the first time, whom Hazel had always described as the most beautiful woman she'd ever seen. Lena had just made history by signing a seven-year contract with MGM that stipulated that she was to play distinguished roles, which didn't exactly work out. But that's another story for another day. MGM was only paying Lena $450 a week, while Hazel's manager, Barry Josephson, had negotiated Hazel's contract of $4,000 per week. Hazel's salary helped shame MGM into raising Lena's salary to $900 a week with a weekly increase of $100 because we lift as we climb. Hazel starred in several other films and started flying from coast to coast, performing in films and concerts on television on the radio, performing in clubs for the likes of Judy Garland, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall for all of the major studios, and including RKO, MGM, Warner Brothers, and Columbia Pictures. Hazel had a very contentious relationship with Columbia Pictures, but I guess Columbia studio boss Harry Cohn wasn't ready for Hazel Scott. And that intrigued him. Until it didn't. Hazel appeared in the Columbia Pictures' 1943 movie musical, The Heat's On, also starring Mae West. The Heat's On follows Faye Lawrence, played by Mae West, who is described as a temperamental diva as she is coerced into performing in a Broadway show. Hazel, of course, plays herself and if at any point thus far you felt i was exaggerating about her unbelievable talents just watch the scene in which she plays two pianos at the same time while singing looking snatched and doesn't break a fucking sweat this is probably the most amazing thing i have ever seen in a film but it actually almost didn't happen Because Hazel got into an argument with the film's costume designer, who thought the black women in the film, who were about to send their men off to war, were wearing aprons that looked too clean and should be sprayed with dirt. Hazel said of this, he insisted that we were going to shoot the scene the way he saw it. I insisted that no scene in which I was involved would display black women wearing dirty aprons to send their men to die for their country. Then she went on strike. Now this was a big deal. It wasn't uncommon for stars like Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart to refuse work that they felt was beneath their talents, but a black actor just did not do that. And she won, sort of, because in the version of the film that was released, the women aren't wearing aprons at all. She literally asked the costume designer if he'd ever seen any Negroes other than his own servants, and everyone on the set stopped breathing. The black women that she defended thought that she had just ended her career. And maybe they were right. Because Harry Cohn, who up until that point had been fond of and intrigued by Hazel, and had done things for her that he'd never done for any other stars, was pissed. And when Hazel found out that he had the audacity to be angry at her over her values, values that she thought he understood and respected, she left Hollywood. She refused to be in a town that treated her like anything less than the queen she was. And Harry Cohn said, she will never step foot in another movie studio as long as I live. So after a pretty good year, Hazel's Hollywood career was effectively over. While Harry Cohn was alive, at least. She made her last Hollywood film, Rhapsody in Blue, thanks to Harry Cohn's vendetta against her, but she didn't care. It wasn't like she needed the Hollywood money. So she went back to New York. But this is where the mistakes began. When she performed in New York at Carnegie Hall, the show was for the benefit of an organization with communist ties. She thought nothing of it. And it was 1943, so no one was very worried about the ramifications of communist ties just yet. So when she returned to New York, to her illustrious life, she met Adam Clayton Powell Jr., a civil rights activist, the self-proclaimed first bad nigger in Congress, and the love of Hazel's life. She said of him, I have always been a very strong feminine creature, and to subdue me, a very, very masculine creature is required. And he said of her, Cafe Society was the supper club of New York, and Hazel Scott was its grand vidette. But Adam was married when they met, He was married to Isabel Washington, actress and sister of one of our subjects, Freddie Washington, but this didn't exactly stop them from being public with their affair. But they loved each other and respected each other's minds and ambitions. And in 1945, just four days after his divorce from Isabel Washington, Hazel and Adam were married. And this started the era of the most famous black couple in America. They lived lavish lives complete with servants and diamonds and luxury cars and seemed completely in love and in lust and floated above it all but for this the black community critiqued them for being out of touch with the people Hazel made almost four times as much money as Adam did, and he was very well paid. So actually, Lavish doesn't even begin to cut it. They lusted after one another and worshiped one another. They were activists together. Hazel cooked and cleaned and kept house, even though the insurance policy on her hands, yes, you heard that right, her hands were insured. The insurance policy on her hands stipulated that she was to do absolutely no cooking for fear of ruining them. But they were living the high life, and Hazel was at the top of her game. And one night, after she finished a particularly stellar performance, Adam informed her that the man that she had just performed with, unbeknownst to Hazel, was Earl Browder, America's number one communist. Again, they didn't think much of it and continued to work to reinvent Hazel into a concert hall artist, given that Adam felt that a preacher's wife shouldn't perform in clubs anymore. And Hazel eventually agreed. This led to many canceled appearances because regardless of how her name alone would fill seats, Hazel refused to perform for segregated audiences. And this led to a fight with the Daughters of the American Revolution, the First Lady of the United States, Bess Truman, and Congress. But like I said, she didn't need the money, and financial freedom gave her the ability to say whatever she wanted, and Adam loved that about his wife. Adam and Hazel had a picture-perfect marriage for the cameras, but behind closed doors, things weren't always peachy keen. Despite the behind closed doors issues, they were riding a high, and Hazel thought nothing could bring her down. But then Hazel's mother, Alma, died. Alma died in 1945, And Hazel was inconsolable. And Time magazine ran print about Alma. Hazel called Alma the biggest influence of her life. With her mother gone, she found herself turning to women like Billie Holiday, whom she'd always considered family. But now, with her biggest support system gone, women like Billie and her husband were really all she had. But Adam's ambitions for the couple didn't exactly make him the ideal shoulder to cry on. And the shifting politics in America made things difficult for the Powells, and The People's Voice, Adam's very famous publication, was becoming known around town as a mouthpiece for the Communist Party. And in 1940s America, in a post-war society, after a bitter fight against non-democratic countries and the Soviet Union becoming more and more and more powerful, the desire for patriotism was at an all-time high. But so was poverty. Homelessness, racial segregation, and black people were getting fed up of fighting wars and coming home to less than patriotic treatment. The country was dividing into those who believed in the First Amendment and those who thought they were protecting it, aka Joseph McCarthy. And beginning in 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee, often called HUAC, began violating people's rights and digging deep into their personal lives to find even the slightest ties to communism. Hollywood was not exempt from this change in our nation, and it soon found itself split between the moral and the immoral. The studio bosses became more conservative, while the actors became more and more liberal. Well, most of them, at least. And America was seeing red at a time when Hazel's career was reaching unprecedented heights. But what goes up must always come down. The Powells were outspoken about racial segregation in America and about poverty and unemployment and the evils of Jim Crow in the South that Hazel had experienced firsthand when she was forced to sleep in her car, covered only in her fur coat because no hotel would take them. But she couldn't let the incredible racial discrimination that she faced on her tour stop her because the Dumont Network was calling with the biggest opportunity yet, the Hazel Scott Show the first of its kind and the first black woman to do it solo and it was incredibly well received. The Hazel Scott Show was a variety show on the Dumont Network that ran from July to September of 1950. It was a 15-minute program that ran three times a week. Variety wrote, Hazel Scott has a neat little show in this modest package. The most engaging element is the Scott personality, which is dignified, yet relaxed and versatile. But... In June of 1950, her name appeared in Red Channels, which was a magazine that outed supposed communist, and she was said to have supported many organizations with deep ties to communism, including Cafe Society. And they made note of a time when she had performed for Soviet troops in 1943. But for those of you who have even the slightest bit of knowledge in U.S. history, you know that in 1943, the Soviet Union was an ally to the United States. But the tides turned quickly in America. And she had a target on her back because of her tireless civil rights activism. So she did the only thing she could do, and something many artists declined to do, Hazel willingly went in front of HUAC to testify and said she wasn't a communist, but it did nothing to help. Her name was tarnished. The newspapers ate her alive, printing headlines calling her the accused, linking her with communism, saying she was attacking patriotism in our country. And so sponsors pulled their support, which, of course, leads to cancellation. And the Hazel Scott show was no more, lasting only one summer. Then the concert offers started to go away one by one. Then the phone stopped ringing. And in a panic, Hazel did what most African Americans did when the work dried up in America she fled to Europe. And Hazel lived the high life, performing on luxury cruises for kings and queens, and in France, London, Paris, Scandinavia, Greece, etc., etc., etc. Everyone loved hazel scott and wanted a piece of her unfathomable talent but the jet setting can run anyone ragged but she couldn't stop her name had grown at a pace that she was always trying to catch up to and she said of this a person needs to go off somewhere and be alone so that his body can catch up with his soul but being a public figure and being married to a public figure makes privacy a luxury this caused her mental health to decline Her drinking and her weight increased, and her family spoke little of Hazel's mind. She couldn't keep up with concert dates, so they were canceled. She started taking prescription drugs and chain smoking, and one night, Hazel took a bunch of pills and tried to kill herself. She had nothing left to live for. But she lived, and throughout her recovery, she decided that she would no longer be a slave to the piano and vowed to spend more time with her son and relax. Then the IRS came calling, as they always do. It seems Adam wasn't so great at managing her finances as he said he was, and so she returned to Carnegie Hall to perform in 1952, effectively ending her blacklisting by HUAC just two years earlier. She made an incredible comeback, recording several hit albums in the 50s, But the 50s also plagued her with marital problems as she and her husband grew further and further apart. Their busy schedules and waning desire to be around one another kept them further and further apart until they decided to live separately. And eventually, Hazel and Adam III moved to Paris to live permanently. She said of her time in Paris, "'My Paris is not the city of champagne and caviar,' My Paris is a pot full of red beans and rice and an apartment full of old friends and glasses tinkling and the rich, happy sound of people laughing from the heart. But she struggled in Paris. They didn't care as much about the 37-year-old single mother who used to be the darling of Harlem and celebrated stars, stage, screen, and radio. Deals fell through and fell through and fell through, and she cried herself to sleep and cried in front of people, and all of that coupled with her husband's fluctuating interest in her marriage led Hazel to take a bunch of pills in another attempt to kill herself. She was listed dead on arrival in the ambulance, but she lived and recovered and again, vowed not to let her career get the best of her. In a personal essay in Ebony Magazine, Hazel wrote, I learned a lot in Paris about people and about myself. One does not look into the face of death as I have and come away worrying about the pettiness and cattiness and gossip and conforming. It seems that every time I am near death, someone or something is asking me over and over, how stupid can you get? How many chances will you need before you find out what's important? This last time, when I spent a month or so in bed, I got the message. I am not likely to ever forget it love is important love and then she divorced Adam and remarried two months later he was 25 and she was 40 and he was white and Italian but the problems of her previous marriage stopped her from celebrating because she got hit with an $11,000 tax bill over back taxes and the trial that her ex-husband was involved in so of course she fled the fucking country and went back to Paris but the work had dried up And to think, just years earlier, she was the hottest classicist in town. Now she was starting to get desperate, and she had a teenage son and a not much older husband to support, and not many friends around to lean on because Adam remarried, Billie Holiday died, Lester Young died, her mother died. She was alone and struggling to keep it together, and that certainly took a toll on her new marriage. And one time, desperate for money, she joined a friend's band, playing the drums, and broke her finger, which kept her out of work for weeks, a luxury Hazel could no longer afford. All the while, the civil rights movement is heating up in the states, and Hazel is just itching to be of any use to the cause at all. So she, James Baldwin, and Bill Marshall, all living in Paris at the time, decided to organize a march that coincided with the March on Washington. Her civil rights activism never waned, even as her personal problems mounted and mounted, including a second divorce and scrambling for gigs in clubs or really anywhere and the U.S. government calling about the money she owed them. And in one of the many letters that she sent to her dear friend back in the States, Mary Lou Williams, she said, my life is one long series of fighting to stay alive, period. And once the story broke about Hazel being broke, she couldn't trust anyone. She became paranoid, embarrassed, depressed, but still too prideful to ask anyone for help. But it was this endeavor that led her home after using Paris. An Ebony Magazine article chronicled her return, saying Hazel Dorothy Scott Powell Bedden has, in the span of what might be considered a short lifetime, been many things. Child progeny, darling of cafe society, concert artist, civil rights pioneer, the wife of a famous and most powerful man, mother, divorcee, expatriate. She received a less than warm welcome from fans and from the black people who had been fighting the civil rights fight from home while she was able to watch from the safety of France. But now that she was home, she dove headfirst into the cause despite the resistance of those fighting. It was around this time in the late 60s that she started to get her career back on track but no longer was she jazzing up the classics. Now she played straight ballads and jazz and making TV appearances, doing extended engagements in New York again, and eventually doing daytime soap operas and acting in small parts on television. And she continued to perform well into the seventies when she also joined the black feminism movement and fought for the rights and spoke on behalf of black women. On October 2nd, 1981, Hazel Scott died She was 61 years old. They discovered that she had pancreatic cancer. Her dear friend, Dizzy Gillespie, played Alone Together at her bedside. It was her favorite song. She left behind one son, two grandson, custom jewels, furs, two ex-husband, and a legacy big enough to fit ten stars. In all of my research, in all of my life, I don't think I've ever heard of a story as extraordinary as that of the life of Hazel Scott. She reached heights that many African-American or even white performers still can't reach. She saw the deepest pits of poverty and despair and depression and picked herself up, reinventing herself over and over and over again. From the age of four, she knew she was special. The piano that faced those hands-intoxicated audiences. She could fill seats and break color barriers and say and do and wear things that African-American performers could only dream of. In spaces where most were lucky to get a job, Hazel demanded treatment that was on par with her talent. Six-figure salaries jewelry crowns top billing shows she spoke seven languages she traveled the globe two three times over wined and dined and performed for kings and queens and had the respect and admiration of some of the most talented performers of all time worldwide my mouth is still on the floor when i think about hazel scott it wasn't always easy it wasn't always pretty but she was an extraordinary human being She was an activist and a feminist before black women had the luxury to be either of those things, let alone both. She broke barriers for performers of color worldwide, and for that, I'll never stop telling her story. I'll never stop telling Hattie McDaniel's story of triumph from slavery, or Nina Mae McKinney's desire for glamour, or Ethel Waters' fight to be heard, or Freddie Washington's fight for us, or Louise Beaver's unshakable presence. These women risked everything to be heard to be seen to be admired just so women like me could have the opportunity to pay it forward and for that i am extremely grateful i'd like to end the season with a quote from this week's subject the hazel scott each day that i have lived thus far has taught me something the sharing of pleasure the loneliness of pain the long hours of waiting for evidence of love the brief bitter horror of the hate, the sad, misguided, misplaced trust, the fact of my own fallibility, my own unworthiness, the greatness that has momentarily been mine, the exalted seconds of genius, the immeasurable depths of apathy. In each day of my life, there has been something of one of these. Whether or not I shall be able to convey in an interesting matter, certain parts of the kaleidoscope life that I have lived, I truly do not know. All I can do is attempt. Thank you so much for tuning into this first season of the Blacklist. It has been such an honor and a whirlwind experience to share these stories of the women who mean so much to me. Please like us on Facebook at the Black List and follow us on Twitter at the Blacklist Pod. And leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe and listen on iTunes or SoundCloud and tell everyone you know. I appreciate any and all support. We'll be back with many episodes in July, and our next full-length season will premiere September 21st. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Until next time.